you to mark them in some fashion. And maybe, maybe circle the first verse of the section and that records that miracle and put the number right in the margin and give some kind of a headline to it. It'll help us uh, as we go. But the first one, chapter 8 and verse number 2, involves the cleansing of what kind of an individual? You can see it there. Behold, there came a, a leper. And before it's done... In verse 3, Jesus just put his hand out and touched him and said, Be clean. And the leprosy was cleansed. The second miracle is recorded beginning in verse number 5. And this miracle was that of a centurion's servant the centurions introduced in verse 5 and he said to the lord my servant is at home sick of the palsy and grievously tormented and jesus said in verse 7 i will come and heal him and the interaction goes on for a number of verses but the second miracle is the healing of the centurion servant that was paralyzed in verse number 14 we have a record of the third miracle in this section and this was a miracle that was performed on peter's wife's mother we would say today peter's what okay peter's mother-in-law and she was uh, sick with a fever and jesus healed her the fourth miracle begins to be reported on in verse 23. And this took place when the disciples, as you see, were out in a ship. And verse 24, there was a great storm on the sea. And before it is all done, Jesus, in verse number 26, rebuked the winds and the waves, and the sea was calm. So Jesus, in verse 23, Three and following the miracle is demonstrating his supremacy over nature as he calms a storm. And then, beginning in verse number 28, the fifth miracle involves his deliverance of two men that were possessed with what? Possessed with demons. The fifth miracle is the deliverance from demon possession. And the sixth one begins to be reported on in chapter 9 and verse 2, where the Lord heals a man that was paralyzed, and in particular, he was paraplegic. So Jesus heals a paraplegic man and been brought to him by friends. The seventh miracle begins in verse number 18. And in verse 18, the story begins to be told of a ruler named Jairus, whose daughter, as you can read in verse 18, had died. And actually, the account of this miracle is interrupted in verse 20 with the seventh miracle. Jesus was on his way to the house of Jairus when 
a woman touches him who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. And Jesus healed her. And then the account returns to his going to the home of Jairus and raising his daughter from the dead. And then verse 27 records the ninth miracle in this section. And in verse 27, that is the giving of sight to two blind men. And then the tenth miracle begins to be recorded in verse 32. And this is another account of demon possession. But in this case, the demon-possessed man could not speak on account of that possession. So, verse 33, the, the devil was cast out. And the, the dumb spake, that is, the, the deaf that was unable to communicate, he, he spoke. Now, those are the ten that are recorded here. And with them marked off individually, I do want to draw your attention to some observations about them collectively. And, and actually, we have records of all of these miracles except um, the last two. We have additional records of them in, in the books of Mark and Luke. And so those other records and comparing statements made in each of the books helps us come to some general observations that I want to highlight that will take us into the big ideas of this two-chapter section. And I would just tell you that if you are trying to take notes, which I very much encourage, okay, these first three are just going to be observations that get us thinking a little more. They're not absolutely critical. They're just going to stir us up. You're welcome to take it. I'm going to give you some illustrations of the points, but, but you might get lost in the detail too, and I'm just telling you the detail is not that important right now. All right, but the first just kind of stir your thinking type of observation is that most of the miracles, as, as Matthew has recorded them, are not in chronological order. Okay, for instance, the, the third miracle recorded, and hopefully you can even just glance at that, the, the third one, which is, what? The healing of Peter's mother-in-law, that is actually the first of any of the ten that we have here that Jesus performed. Okay, so the third is actually the first chronologically. And again, number six, you can look down, the healing of the paraplegic man that opens chapter nine. That one actually comes before miracles four and five that conclude chapter eight. All right, and I can go through all ten and show you where they're at. But the point is, they're out of order with themselves. Chronologically, they're out of order. All right. The second observation, again, just to get us thinking, is that they aren't in order with the other events in the book of Matthew either. So, for instance, the, the leper and Peter's mother-in-law and the paralytic man, okay, the, the healing of those three, those three miracles actually all come before Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, but we've just got done studying the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And now we're introduced to these miracles 
that actually took place before he preached the sermon. All right? Six of the last seven actually occur um, after Jesus gave the kingdom parables that are recorded in Matthew chapter, anybody know where that is? Matthew chapter 13. All right, so we have three of them that come before the Sermon on the Mount, which we just studied. And then we have six of them that are going to come after Matthew 13. But, but they're here. Okay? The only one that is actually in chrono- chronological order is the centurion's servant. By that I mean the only miracle of the ten that we're studying that comes between the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom parables is the centurion's servant. All right? In addition to those things, they're out of order with each other. They're out of order in the book. In uh, chapter 8, if you'll go back there, the third observation that I'm making, just to stir our thinking. Chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, is not a section about miracles. It's actually a section where we're told about two people that interacted with the Lord about discipleship you can see in verse 19 a certain scribe came to him and then verse 21 another of his disciples came to him and they wanted to follow him all right now we're going to look at all that but those two instances didn't occur until right before the lord's final journey to jerusalem which is at the very end of his life and ministry Right? So they're not coming until right towards the end of this book and the end of the Gospels, chronologically. Right? Now, I said earlier that those are thought-provoking observations. If I was just reading through here and I wasn't comparing, I would think that, well, the, the miracles probably went in order and they probably came at this time. Okay? And then I start to compare and I'm like, wait a minute. They're not in order with each other. They're not in order of the book. And something that's placed in here that isn't even a miracle section happens way at the end. So what's going on? And I could just start to think that all this is happening incidentally. Like, you know, we're, we're telling a story. And sometimes have you done this? You tell a story about what happened on vacation or whatever it happened at a certain time in your life. And you start to tell it. And then you're like, wait a minute. Something else happened before that. Um, and, oh, I'm getting, my, I'm getting stuff all out of order. Okay? Forgive me, I'm getting it all out of order. And we could, we could possibly think that Matthew's just like that. Matthew's writing, and, and all of a sudden he remembers something else, and I'll have to put that down too, and he remembers something else. And, and it could be that we're thinking that he's just writing it down with no rhyme or reason. But we actually have a foundational belief that points us in the direction that this isn't Matthew just doing something incidentally. Because while Matthew is the human penman who gave us this report, there's somebody else that is superintending everything Matthew wrote. And that somebody else is none other than the person of who? That is the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote in 1 Peter He said that none of what we have is by any private interpretation, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So if we believe, and I say for my sake, 
I do believe, and I know you believe. If we believe in the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, then the discovery process is really exciting. Why do we have the things we have here then in chapters 8 and 9? And we're not going to answer all of those questions this morning. Some of that's going to come as we go section by section. But I do want to now start with broader observations that help us in the discovery process that are vital. And if you are taking notes, I would encourage you to take these notes. All right? At the end of Matthew chapter 4, we have something of a tip-off to what is coming. Go back, if you will, to Matthew chapter 4. And verse number 23, we want to note what Matthew said Jesus was doing. Notice in Matthew 4 and verse 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, and he was doing this. He was teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So one of the things Jesus was doing, one of his activities was the whole realm of teaching and preaching. All right? But then notice the second realm of his activities. He's not only teaching and preaching, but he was doing what? Okay? He was healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. All right? <clears throat> Keep that in mind. Look now at chapter 9 and verse 35. I've been saying we have a two-chapter section that records ten sample miracles. And when we get right to the end of it, Look at Matthew 9 and verse 35. Notice, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and doing what? And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. That sounds just like Matthew 4, verse what? Verse 23. And we have it again in chapter 9 and verse 35. Brethren, these, these are like, like bookends, right? You have that on a shelf in your library. These are like bookend statements for the material that is found in chapters 5 through 9. Okay? There's going to be kind of two branches of Matthew's reporting on what Jesus was doing. One of the things Jesus was doing was teaching and what? Teaching and preaching. And we have that recorded in what chapters? We have the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. So Matthew was telling us, look, I'm going to give you something of a summary of the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus. I'm going to do it by the record of this one sermon that he preached on this particular occasion on that mount. And I'm also going to give you a summary of the second branch of Jesus' activity, which was his what? His healing of people, of all their diseases. So we have the teaching and preaching in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we have a sample of his miracles in chapters 8 and 9. We have the words and the works of Jesus, who is the Christ. But we can actually go back to the beginning. We can go further back and just kind of catch a broader flow as well. And I'm drawing on the fact that many of you have been with us from the beginning. 
But in the first two chapters of Matthew's record of the gospel, we have the origins of Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messianic King. And if you remember back, all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 1, Jesus the Christ is the son of two Old Testament figures. He's the son of Abraham, and he's the son of David. And the genealogy is given to prove that Jesus has the racial pedigree to be the Messiah. Racially, he is a Hebrew descendant of Abraham. But he not only has the racial pedigree, the genealogy also witnesses to the fact that he has the royal pedigree. He's not only a Hebrew son of Abraham, he is a royal son of David, who two times right in the genealogy is described as David the what? David the king. And God told Abraham that one of his descendants was going to be a source of blessing to the whole world. And God told David that one of his descendants was going to sit on an eternal, exclusive, worldwide throne and rule. And Matthew presents Jesus as having all of the credentials. He has the pedigree. He fulfills the prophecies of being born of a virgin. Even in chapter 2, the very physical, geographical origins, where he was born, where they fled, where he ended up growing up. All of those things had been prophesied by the Old Testament. And when you go into chapters 3 and 4, that records the preparations and the public introduction of Jesus. Remember, there was a forerunner that also had been prophesied. John the Baptist was that forerunner. The, the baptism of Jesus, which was like his public commissioning, even the record of his temptation, hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat with the devil tempting him, and his impeccable character, all of those are publicly introducing us to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth has all the credentials to be God's messianic king. And now let me tell you about his teaching and his preaching. And when he preached, he kept preaching about that kingdom. And now let me tell you about the kind of works that he did, the miracles that he performed. And these chapters also begin to point us to some of the responses of the people. I want to have you go back again to chapter 4. And in verse 23... He's teaching and preaching, and then he's healing people. And the response of that is verse 24, that his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people, those that were taken with diverse diseases and torments. And come down to verse number 25, and there followed him, what's the next statement? Great what? There followed him great multitudes, big crowds start to follow him. In chapter 5, notice in verse number 1, and seeing the what? Seeing the multitudes, he went up and taught. And when he was done teaching, flip over to chapter 7 and verse number 28, what did the multitudes think about his teaching and his preaching? Well, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, the people were, what? 
They're astonished. They're amazed. So chapter 8, when he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Again, large crowds. And we have a statement in verse number 18 here of chapter 8 that Jesus saw great multitudes, again, following him. Look at chapter 9 and verse 8. When the multitudes saw it, they marveled at what was happening. Look down into verse number 33 here of chapter 9. When the devil was cast out, the dumb spake and and who? What do we have again? And the multitudes marveled, saying it was never so seen in Israel. Hey, why are there so many crowds of people? And why is this emphasized again and again? Well, think about this. Even to this day, what happens in a third world country when food supplies show up or a medical center is established? People do what? They, they flock to it with any sign of any hope. Well, the environment of Jesus' day was a third world. And it was really a third world when there wasn't what we call today even a first world. Okay? People far more keenly felt the burdens of their physical needs. And when people saw the potential of gain, resources, the alleviation of of the diseases and the pressures and burdens, they clung to the source of some hope for them. But when you explore this further, you discover that the miracles that Jesus was doing wasn't a matter of him making a really big deal out of those people as if all those people deserved miracles. And we will find statements about Jesus showing compassion and so on. I'm not doubting that. But I do want to show you that the point of the miracles being done in the presence of all those people and all those crowds was not primarily about compassion. It was primarily about emphasizing something. And it's going back to the end of that teaching. Go back to chapter 7 and verse number 28. And I just want you to see again what did the people marvel at at the conclusion of his teaching. It came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having what? As one having authority. And it's in this section of miracles that there is a continued emphasis on the authority of Jesus. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9 is the next direct reference to authority. There's other places where the word authority isn't found, but the concept is. But look at chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under, what? Under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go and he goeth, and to another come, and he cometh, and to my servant do this, and he doeth it. And Jesus heard it, verse 10, marveled, 
and said, I've not found such great faith. What is he saying? That centurion said, I know what it is to speak with authority. I tell my servants, go. And he said, I actually am believing about you, that you have the kind of authority that you don't even need to come to where my servant is. But if you just say the word that he's healed, <clears throat> I'm going to take you at your word. <clears throat> even when the concept of authority, the word authority is not mentioned. As I said, the concept is there. Look at chapter 8 and verse 27. And I'm just dipping down in a couple places to emphasize this. The disciples were there in the storm and the winds and the waves were beating them and they were scared. But in verse number 26, he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm and the men marveled saying what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves do what they obey him again another term of authority he has authority over the winds and the waves i mean it's like he says obey and they obey and then there's another very significant reference look at chapter 9 and verse number 6. In chapter 9 and verse 6, he says, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And we've talked about the fact here in Matthew before that there are two Greek words for power. Okay, one is the power of ability. It's dunamis in the Greek, and I'm saying it because it sounds like dynamite, and that's the idea kind of explosive ability kind of power. But the other word that is often translated power is a word that comes uh, from, the, the Greek term is exousia, and that's not important, but I'm just telling you so you can hear how different it is than dunamis. Dunamis, power of ability, dynamite. Exousia is also translated power, but it's the kind of power that comes from being in a position of authority. And that's the word here. It's exousia. Okay? And in the aftermath of the healing of the paraplegic, Jesus claims to have, look at it again, he claims to have authority on earth to do what? To forgive sins. And after that claim, he told the paraplegic man to take up his bed and walk. And when he did, look at verse 8 again. The multitude saw it. They marveled and glorified that God had given such. And it's exousia again. They marveled and glorified that God had given such authority unto men. Okay? Who has the right, first of all, to forgive sin? And who has the right to tell somebody, take up your bed and walk? And he does. Now, the connection between healing people from disease and forgiving people of their sin is a big deal. And some people reacted. And you know what? They should react. Again, in verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 3, what did they say about Jesus? When he said at the end of verse 2, your sins be forgiven you, behold certain of the scribes, 
said within themselves, this man does what? He's, he's guilty of blasphemy. And brethren, and we'll explore this more, but if he was a mere man and he claimed he could forgive sin, then they were what? They were absolutely right because no mere man can absolve anyone of their sin. But that's exactly what Jesus is claiming. And there's more connections here. In verse 2, the word forgive, at the end of verse number 2, son be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And in verse number 6, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Okay, Both of those references, that word forgive has the idea of dismissing or sending away. Jesus is claiming again that he had the authority to dismiss and send away their sin. But what's interesting is go back to chapter 8 and verse 15. And when it describes Peter's mother-in-law's fever leaving her, that expression that is translated left is actually the same word as in chapter 9 and verse 2 and chapter 9 and verse 6 that is translated forgive. You know what it's saying? It's saying that the Lord encountered Peter's mother-in-law's fever and he dismissed that fever and sent it away from her the same way he claims he can dismiss people's sin. Now, brother, we are starting to get right to the heart, and we're almost done, because we are everything leading right down to this. The Lord is actually claiming that he can deal with people's sins the same way um, he can deal with people's diseases. Jesus can say about people's diseases, be gone, and it's dismissed. It's gone. But Jesus can also deal with people's sin debt in the presence of a holy God the exact same way. And this is the connection that we're supposed to see in Matthew 8 and 9, is the miracles were actually a display of Jesus' authority. And Jesus, think about this. Jesus has authority over all those physical diseases. That's one category of miracles. Jesus has authority over the natural world. He can actually say to winds and waves, be still and they obey him. Jesus has authority over the whole spiritual realm. He can command demons to be gone and they're gone. And Jesus has authority over the greatest affliction of all and that is affliction of death and he can bring a young girl who's been dead and everybody knows it back to life but even more important than jesus ability to deliver from <clears throat> physical disease and command nature and command the spiritual world and deliver from death is jesus authority to deliver from sin and again, if 
I took a step back into the flow of this book. If we really have listened to Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we come away incredibly sobered. If we have listened accurately and we have listened with hum humility, we arrive at a great deal of conviction. Because when Jesus even started to apply the Ten Commandments, remember what he said? He said, it's not just okay that you've never taken a gun and premeditatedly shot someone and murdered them. But that commandment addresses what's going on in your heart where maybe nobody else knows anything, and it addresses what comes out of your mouth. Then it's not just okay in the seventh commandment that you have never literally violated your marriage covenant and had an affair with somebody <clears throat> after you were married, but it talks about what you look at and what you think in your heart, and it talks about everything in the whole arena of morality. And when you continue to listen to him, apply the law right down on the heart level, you really do come away with, with a, a keen sense that you are in trouble on account of your sin. And that being delivered from your sin is the greatest deliverance you need. But brethren, that's the kind of deliverance you can't expect from Jesus. And again, that's not new news in the Gospel of Matthew. Back in the first chapter, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their what? From their sins. This king is also the Savior, and he deals with your greatest need. And I don't know what you feel like is your greatest need here this morning. Some of us feel like our greatest need is that we're just getting old, and we feel like we're falling apart. My energy is there. My, my is not there. My eyesight is not there. Um, I'm losing my teeth. <laughs> you know, or maybe I feel like everywhere I turn, like, you know, my cars are broken down. I've got a couple of those right now. <clears throat> and, and you start to think about what is your biggest problem? I don't know what you would say your biggest problem is right now. Or you say, Pastor, I'll give you my top ten. All right. I don't know what you think your top 10 biggest problems are, but brethren, the biggest problem we have is with our own sin. And if Jesus is sovereign and he has the power to dismiss our sin, what is the right response that we ought to have to him? Well, again, these things are sprinkled throughout, but just look at chapter 8 and verse 10. When Jesus heard the words of this centurion, trusting in his authority, he said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great what? I have not found so great faith. Look at verse 13. Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way, as thou hast done what? As thou hast believed. What did Jesus rebuke about the disciples in the midst of the storm? In verse 23, he entered in the ship. Verse 24, I'm sorry, come all the way down to verse number 26. What did he rebuke? He saith unto them, why are ye so fearful, O ye of little, what? O ye of little faith. Come over to chapter 9 and verse 22. What did Jesus say about this woman who had been hemorrhaging? He turned about, when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort, thy what? 
Thy faith have made thee whole. Verse 27, these blind men say, Jesus, have mercy on us. And verse 28, when he's come in the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, do you what? Do you believe? And look at verse 29. Then he touched, then touched he their eyes, saying, according to your, what? According to your faith, be it unto you. And there's other places where the term isn't used, but again, the concept is found. There are people that distinguish themselves in the midst of the crowd of multitudes by displaying a personal faith, a firm persuasion that he is all that he claims to be and will do all that he has claimed to do in their life, to be and to do all these claims. And in particular, brethren, what is really the issue is are you fully persuaded that Jesus alone is able to dismiss the monstrous debt of sin that you owe God and you would never be able to pay on your own. Then this faith that Jesus points to is a faith that follows. And that's the contribution of those stories we noted that are inserted back in chapter 8 and I'm not going to even take the time to go back there but the whole matter of following. Matthew's own testimony is included early in chapter 9. There's multiple people that have wrong ideas about Jesus, but Matthew followed, and Matthew followed right to the end. <clears throat> the challenge that we receive from the two chapters taken together is that the Lord is entirely sufficient to meet every need that you have. He is able to handle all of those physical and material needs. And sometimes he does step in and he relieves those needs and he does them miraculously and, and I've been communicating some for different reasons about my own background but I was a junior in college when they told me I had two to three years to live. And I had cancer in my lungs had chemotherapy the cancer came back spread to my liver then they said we don't think we can keep you alive for two years <clears throat> and and i don't know what to tell you today except i know there was a point where god's people were fasting and praying for an extended period of time and i had doctors say i don't know how to explain it but it's gone it's gone and brethren, every time God steps in and does any kind of miracle like that for us, the greatest witness, what I'm supposed to think about that, is that he not only has the power to meet every physical and material need, but I'm supposed to remember that he has the power to deal with my greatest need, and my greatest need is my sin debt in the presence of God. And honestly, when the Lord leaves those pressures and he, and, and he doesn't deliver from the physical and material. And while God delivered me, he took my own dad early in his 50s with cancer in his lungs. I can't begin to explain the deliverance of me for all these years and my dad being taken within about five months. But when the Lord doesn't deliver and he lets us go through it ourselves or go through it with some other loved one, 
What I am supposed to remember is that what I need way more than the physical deliverance is the spiritual deliverance. I'm right back at it. When he shows his hand, I'm supposed to recognize that showing his hand miraculously demonstrates he has the authority to deliver from all those diseases, but he has the authority to deliver from the source of all those diseases, which is my sin. And when he lets us all go through the physical things, it's a reminder that what I need more, I I need far more than better eyesight for the last few years of this life. I need a deliverance from the greatest need that I have, which is my sin. And brethren, he does, listen, there's the witness. He does dismiss the sins of his people. But his people are marked by these two qualities. They are marked by a believing that follows him. What I'm supposed to learn from this is Jesus has all authority over every realm you can think of. But what he has preeminently is the authority to dismiss my sin. And on my own, I'm in big trouble with God. But if I will believe that he's who he claims to be and that he will do all that he claims to do, if I will believe that to the extent I take him and my life is marked as one that follows him, I can have confidence that all this bad news that's all around me is just temporary. And what awaits me is a day when he wipes all tears away and there's no more pain and there's no more sorrow and there's no more death and there's no more dying. All of that is gone and I'm forever with him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to give an opportunity. I don't know what may be in your heart to talk to the Lord about. This morning it may be some pressing physical things. It may be the thought of your eternal soul. It may be uh, the need of your sin. And deliverance from it. I just want to give you opportunity to talk to the Lord in light of what we've seen of the Savior here.